Hi everyone. This is the first episode of the Blind Patriot podcast. I'll be reading a story called From Small Beginnings. It's written by Mr. Ruskin Bond, who also happens to be one of my favorite authors. He's based out of Missouri and most of his stories reflect his undying love for the mountains. Hope you enjoy the story. So let's begin. From small beginnings, and the last puff of the day wind brought from the unseen villages, the scent of damp wood smoke, hot cakes, dripping undergrowth, rotting pine cones. That is the true smell of the Himalayas, and if once it creeps into the blood of a man, that man will at the last, forgetting all else, return to the hills to die. Rudyard Kipling. On the first clear September day, towards the end of the rains, I visited the Pine Dome, my place of peace and power. It was months since I had been last there. Trips to the plains, a crisis in my affairs, involvements with other people and the troubles, and an entire monsoon had come between me and the grassy pine-topped slope facing the hill of fairies, Paritipa to the locals. Now I tramped through late monsoon foliage. Tall ferns, bushes festooned with flowering convolulus, crossed the stream by way of its little bridge of stones and climbed the steep hill to the pine slope. When the trees saw me, they made as if to turn in my direction. A puff of wind came across the valley from the distant snows. A long-tailed blue magpie took alarm and flew noisily out of an oak tree. The cicadas were suddenly silent. But the trees remembered me. They bowed gently in the breeze and beckoned me nearer, welcoming me home. Three pines, a straggling oak and a wild cherry. I went among them, acknowledged the welcome, and with a touch of my hand against their trunks, the cherries smooth and polished, the pines patterned and whorled, the oaks rough, gnarled, full of experience. He had been their longest and the wind had bent his upper branches and twisted a few, so that he looked shaggy and undistinguished. But like the philosopher who is careless about his dress and appearance, the oak has secrets, a hidden wisdom. He has learned the art of survival. While the oak and the pines are older than me and have been here many years, the cherry tree is exactly seven years old. I know because I planted it. One day I had this cherry seed in my hand and on impulse I thrust it into the soft earth and then went away and forgot all about it. A few months later I found a tiny cherry tree in the long grass. I did not expect it to survive. But the following year it was two feet tall and then some goats ate its leaves and a grass cutter's scythe injured the stem. I was sure it would wither away. But it renewed itself, sprang up even faster and within three years, it was a healthy growing tree, about five feet tall. I left the hills for two years, forced by circumstances to make a living in Delhi. But this time I did not forget the cherry tree. I thought about it fairly often, sent telepathic messages of encouragement in its direction. And when a couple of years ago, I returned in the autumn, my heart did a somersault when I found my tree sprinkled with pale pink blossom, the Himalayan cherry flowers in November. 
and later when the fruit was ripe, the tree was visited by finches, jets, bulbuls and other small birds, all come to feast on the sour red cherries. Last summer, I spent a night on the pine knoll sleeping on the grass beneath the cherry tree. I lay away for hours, listening to the chatter of the stream and the occasional tonk-tonk of a nightjar, and watching through the branches overhead the stars turning the sky, and I felt the power of the sky and earth and the power of the small cherry seed. And so, when the rains are over, this is where I come, that I might feel the peace and power of this place. It's a big world and momentous events are taking place all the time. But this is where I have seen it happens. This is where I'll write my stories. I can see everything from here. My cottage across the valley, behind and above me. The town and the bazaar straddling the ridge to the left. The high mountains and the twisting road to the source of the great river below me. The little stream and the path to the village ahead. The hill of fairies, the fields beyond, the white valleys below, and then another range of hills and then the distant plains. I can even see Prem Singh in the garden, putting the mattress out in the sun. From here he is just a speck on the far hill, but I know it is Prem by the way he stands. A man may have a hundred disguises, but in the end it's his posture that gives him away. Like my grandfather was a master of disguise and successfully roamed the bazaars as a fruit vendor or basket maker. But we could always recognize him because of his pronounced slouch. Prem Singh doesn't slouch, but he has this habit of looking up at the sky, regardless of whether it's cloudy or clear. And at the moment he's looking at the sky. Eight years with Prem, he was just a 16-year-old boy when I first saw him, and now he has a wife and a child. I had been in the cottage for just over a year. He stood on the landing outside the kitchen door. A tall boy, dark with good teeth and brown deep-set eyes. Dressed smartly in white drill, his only change of clothes. Looking for a job. I like the look of him, but... I already have someone working for me, I said. Yes, sir. He's my uncle. In the hills, everyone is a brother or an uncle. You don't want me to dismiss your uncle? No, sir. But he says you can find a job for me. I'll try. I'll make inquiries. Have you just come from your village? Yes. Yesterday I walked 10 miles to Pori. There I got a bus. Sit down. Your uncle will make some tea. He sat down on the steps, removed his white kegs, wriggled his toes. His feet were both long and broad. Large feet but not ugly. He was unusually clean for a hill boy and taller than most. Do you smoke? I asked. No, sir. It is true, said his uncle. He does not smoke. All my nephews smoke. But this one is a little peculiar. He does not smoke. Neither beady nor hookah. Do you drink? It makes me vomit. Do you take bhang? No, sahib. You have no vices. It's unnatural. He is a natural sahib, said his uncle. Does he chase girls? They chase him, sahib. So he left the village and came looking for a job. I looked at him. He grinned, then looked away, began rubbing his feet. Your name is? Prem Singh. All right, Prem. I'll try to do something for you. I did not see him for a couple of weeks. I forgot about finding him a job. But when I met him again on the road to the bazaar, he told me that he had got a temporary job in the survey, looking after the survey tents. Next week, we'll be going to Rajasthan, he said. It'll be very hot. 
Have you been to the desert before? No, sir. It's not like the hills and it is far from home. I know, but I have no choice in the matter. I have to collect some money in order to get married. In his region, there was a bride price, usually of 2,000 rupees. You have to get married so soon? I have only one brother and is still very young. My mother is not well. She needs a daughter-in-law to help her in the fields and with the cows and in the house. We are a small family, so the work is greater. Every family has its few terraced fields, narrow and stony, usually perched on a hillside above a stream or river. They grow rice, barley, maize, potatoes, just enough to live on. Even if they produce sufficient for marketing, the absence of road makes it difficult to get the produce to the market towns. There's no money to be earned in the villages. And money is needed for clothes, soap, medicines and recovering the family jewelry from the moneylenders. So the young men leave their villages to find work and to find work, they must go to the plains. Lucky ones get into the army, others enter domestic service or take jobs in garages, hotels, wayside tea shops. In Missouri, the main attraction is a large number of schools, which employs cooks and bearers. But the schools were full when Prem arrived. He had been to the recruiting center at Rurki, hoping to get into the army, but they found a deformity in his right foot. The result of a bone broken when a landslip carried him away one dark monsoon night. He was lucky, he said, that it was only his foot and not his head that had been broken. He came to the house to inform his uncle about the job and to say goodbye. I thought, another nice person I probably won't see again. Another ship passing the night. The friendly twinkle of its lights soon vanishing in the darkness. I said, come again. Held his smile with mine so that I could remember him better and returned to my study and my typewriter. The typewriter is the repository for writer's loneliness. It stares unsympathetically back at him every day, doing its best to be discouraged. Maybe I'll go back to the old-fashioned quill pen and a marble inkstand. Then I can feel like a real writer, Balzac or Dickens, scratching away into the neat, endless reaches of the night. Of course, the days and nights are seemingly shorter than they need to be. They must be. Otherwise, why do we hurry so much and achieve so little by the standards of the past? Prem goes, disappears into the vast, faceless cities of the plains, and a year slips by, or rather, I do. And then here he is again, thinner and darker, and still smiling and still looking for a job. I should have known that hillmen don't disappear forever. The spirit-haunted rocks don't let their people wander too far lest they lose them forever. I was able to get him a job in the school. The headmaster's wife needed a cook. I wasn't sure if Prem could cook very well, but I sent him along and they said they'd give him a try. Three days later, the headmaster's wife met me on the road and started gushing all over me. She was the type who gushes. I was so grateful to you. Thank you for sending me that lovely boy. He's so polite and he cooks very well. A little too hot for my husband, but otherwise delicious. Just delicious. He's a real treasure, a lovely boy. And she gave me an arch look. The famous look, which used to captivate all the good-looking good young prefects who became prefects. It was said only if she approved of them. I wasn't sure if she didn't want something more than a cook. And I only hoped that Prem would give every satisfaction. He looked cheerful enough when he came to see me on his off day. How are you getting on? I asked. Lovely, he said, using his mistress's favorite expression. 
What do you mean lovely? Do they like your work? The main sahib likes it. She strokes me on the cheek whenever she enters the kitchen. The sahib says nothing. He takes medicine after every meal. Did he always take medicine or only now that you're doing the cooking? I'm not sure. I think he has always been sick. He's sleeping in the headmaster's veranda and getting 60 rupees a month. A cook in Delhi got 160 and a cook in Paris or New York got 10 times as much. I did not say as much to Prem. He might ask me to get him a job in New York and that would be the last I saw of him. He as a cook might well get a job making curries of Broadway. I as a writer wouldn't get to first base. Only my uncle Ken knew the secret of how to make a living without actually doing any work. But then of course he had four sisters and each of them was married to a fairly prosperous husband. So uncle Ken divided up his year among them. Three months with Aunt Ruby in Nenital, three months with Aunt Susie in Kashmir, three months with my mother, not quite so affluent, in Jamnagar, and three months in the vet hospital in Bareilly where Aunt Mabel ran the hospital for a veterinary husband. In this way, he never overstayed his welcome. A sister can look after a brother for just three months at a time and no more. Uncle K had it worked out to perfection. But I had no sisters and I could live forever on the royalties of a single novel. So I had to write others. So I came to the hills. The hillmen go to the plains to make a living. I had to come to the hills to try and make mine. Prem, I said, why don't you work for me? And what about my uncle? He seems ready to desert me any day. His grandfather is ill, he says, and he wants to go home. His grandfather died last year. That's what I mean. He's getting restless. And I don't mind if he goes. These days he seems to be suffering from a form of sleeping sickness. I have to get up first and make his tea. Sitting here under the cherry tree, whose leaves are just beginning to turn yellow, I rest my chin on my knees and gaze across the valley to where Prem moves about in the garden. Looking back over the seven years he's been with me, I recall some of the nicest things about him. They come to me in no particular order. Just pieces of cinema, coloured slides slipping across the screen of memory. Prem rocking his infant son to sleep, crooning to him, passing his large hand gently over the child's curly head. Prem following me down to the police station when I was arrested on a warrant from Bombay charging me with allegedly an obscene short story and waiting outside until I reappeared. His smile when I found him in Delhi, his large irrepressible laughter, most in evidence when he was seeing an old Laurel and Hardy movie. Of course, there were times where he could be infuriating, stubborn, deliberately pig-headed, sending me little notes of resignation. But I never found it difficult to overlook these little acts of self-indulgence. He had brought much love and laughter into my life and what more could a lonely man ask for? It was a stubborn streak that limited the length of his stay in the headmaster's household. Mr. Good was tolerant enough, but Mrs. Good was one of those women who, when they pleased with you, go out of the way to help, pamper and flatter, and who, when they are displeased, become vindictive, going out of the way to harm or destroy. Mrs. Good sought power over her husband, her dog, her favourite pupils, her servant. She had absolute power over the husband and the dog, partial power over her slightly bewildered pupils and none at all over Prem, who missed the subtleties of her designs upon his soul. He did not respond to her mothering or to the way in which she tweaked him on the cheeks, brushed against him in the kitchen or made admiring remarks about his looks and physique. 
main sahibs he knew were not for him. So he kept a stony face and went diligently about his duties. And she felt slighted, put in a place. Her liking turned to dislike. Instead of admiring remarks, she began making disparaging remarks about his looks, his clothes, his manners. She found fault with his cooking. No longer was it lovely. She even accused him of taking away the dog's meat and giving it to a poor family living on the hillside. No more heinous crime could be imagined. Mr. Good threatened him with dismissal, so Prem became stubborn. The following day, he withheld his dog's food altogether, threw it down the khad where it was seized upon by innumerable strays and went off to the pictures. It was the end of his job. I'll have to go home now, he told me. I won't get another job in this area. The Mame Sahib will see to that. Stay a few days, I said. I have only enough money with Mitch to get home. Keep it for going home. You can stay with me for a few days while you look around. Your uncle won't mind sharing his food with you. His uncle did mind. He did not like the idea of working for his nephew as well. It seemed to him no part of his duties and he was apprehensive lest Prem might get his job. So Prem stayed no longer than a week. Here on the knoll, the grass is just beginning to turn October yellow. The first clouds approaching winter cover the sky. The trees are very still, the birds are silent. Only a cricket keeps singing on the oak tree. Perhaps there will be a storm before evening. A storm like that in which Prem arrived at the cottage with his wife and child. But that's jumping too far ahead. After he had returned to his village, it was several months before I saw him again. His uncle told me he had taken up a job in Delhi. There was an address. It did not seem complete. But I resolved that when I was next in Delhi, I would try to see him. The opportunity came in May as the hot winds of summer blew across the plains. It was the time of the year when people who can afford it try to get away to the hills. I disliked New Delhi at the best of times and I hate it in summer. People compete with each other in being bad-tempered and mean. But I had to go down. I don't remember why, but it must have seemed very necessary at the time. And I took this opportunity to try and see Prem. Nothing went right for me. Of course, the address was all wrong and I wandered about in a remote, dusty, treeless colony called Pasan Vihar for over two hours asking all the domestic servants I came across if they could put me in touch with Prem Singh or village Kohli, Pauri Garhwal. There were innumerable Prem Singhs, but apparently none of who belonged to village Kohli. I returned to my hotel and took two days to recover from heat stroke before returning to Masuri, thanking God for mountains. For the next six months, I lived in the cottage without any help. I did not find this difficult. I was used to living alone. It was a service that I needed but companionship. In the cottage, it was very quiet. The ghosts of long-dead residents were sympathetic but unobtrusive. The song of the whistling thrush was beautiful, but I knew it was not singing for me. Up the valley came the sound of a flute, but I never saw the flute player. My affinity was with this little red fox who roamed the hillside below the cottage. I met him one night and wrote these lines. As I walked home last night, I saw a lone fox dancing in the cold moonlight. I stood and watched, then took the low road knowing the night was his by right. Sometimes when words ring true, I'm like a lone fox dancing in the morning dew. During the rains, watching the dripping trees and the mist climb in the valley, 
I wrote a great deal of poetry. Loneliness is of value to poets. But poetry drink didn't bring me much money and funds were low. And then, just as I was wondering if I would have to give up my freedom and take up a job again, a publisher bought the paperback rights of one of my children's stories. And I was free to live and write as I pleased for another three months. That was in November. To celebrate, I took a long walk through the Lindor Bazaar and up the Tehri Road. It was a good day for walking and it was dark by the time I returned to the outskirts of the town. Someone stood waiting for me on the road above the cottage. I hurried past him. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? And if I am not for others, what am I? And if not now, when? I startled myself with the memory of these words of Hillel, the ancient Hebrew sage. I walked back to the shadows where the youth stood and saw that it was Prem. Prem, I said. Why are you sitting out here in the cold? Why did you not go to the house? I went, sir, but there was a lock on the door. I thought you had gone away. And you are going to remain here on the road? Only for tonight. I would have gone down to Dehra in the morning. Come, let's go home. I have been waiting for you. I looked for you in Delhi, but could not find the place where you were working. I have left them now. And your uncle has left me. So will you work for me now? For as long as you wish. For as long as the gods wish. We did not go straight home, but returned to the bazaar and took our meal in the Sindhi sweet shop. Hot puris and a strong sweet tea. We walked home together in the bright moonlight. I felt sorry for the little fox dancing alone. That was 20 years ago and Prem and his wife and three children are still with me. But we live in a different house now on another hill.